You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is episode 145. And before I introduce this episode, just a reminder to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show or just go to newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, I'm going to send you that newsletter roughly once every two weeks and, and other than announcing announcements of the new episode of the podcast, you will find there some blogs, articles, commentary, and some other cool stuff. And the reason I'm asking you and I'm pushing so hard uh, for you to subscribe to this newsletter is because the future of social media, for the future of uh, small creators like me on social media is... Uh, nothing but certain um you know if everything goes in the direction that if the creator wants to reach to the audience they need to pay facebook is like that for a long time that without substantial budget for ads you're not going to get anywhere any exposure on facebook instagram is pretty much the same and it looks like twitter is also going that direction with uh pushing for the you know blue check mark uh, which is paid service now to even get any exposure. So um, basically social media might be not useful anymore for people like me, small creators, independent creators. And that's why it's important to stay in touch with you. And the best way to do that is uh, a newsletter. So uh, yeah, go in the description of the show, newsletter.tomisoutdoors.com, subscribe in there. And uh, yeah, and we good. Now, in this episode... We talk about the future of hunting. A lot of us who enjoy hunting, hunting and fishing even, um, are kind of worried about the future of the activity. On one hand, dwindling population of wildlife. Um, on the other hand, dwindling social acceptance for the activity, uh, which might or might not be related to dwindling uh, populations of wildlife and people just spending less time outdoors, less time in nature and not understanding really what's going on. Add to that hunting organizations and portion of hunting community that basically don't, don't see what's going on. They fail to adapt and then they fail to work. Uh, to ensure the future of uh, hunting and fishing for the future generations. So all that paints uh, not a pretty picture, and um, but maybe that picture is not that bad as some think it is. So our guest today is uh, Richard Prideau. He's a wilderness skills and survival instructor, and also a writer and photographer, and a host of a podcast called Modern Outdoors Survival. So definitely check out his podcast as well. We talk about this, uh, all these aspects of uh, hunting and uh, its future with Richard. He clearly spent some time thinking about it, and he has very interesting thought on the subject. So I'm sure you will enjoy this episode and uh, maybe form your own opinions about the future of uh, hunting and fishing. And finally, I would like to remind you that this May... In Oxfordshire, 
there is a environmental debate live and unscripted where yours truly is taking part. I'm going to be talking about whether we can still consume meat uh, while um, having a uh, animal welfare and environment at the forefront of our minds. So this is a subject I'm going to be um, discussing on a panel discussion on the environmental debate live and unscripted May in Oxfordshire. Again, go into the description of this show and uh, there's a link so you can buy tickets and uh, come and see me uh, talk live. And uh, yeah, we can hang out afterwards and uh, have a chat. So that's it for this introduction. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Prido and the future of hunting. Richard, good to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we're going to talk here today a subject that I feel is not discussed explicitly. It is mentioned implicitly very often. But um, yeah, so let's drive right into it. And my first uh, question to you would be, how do you feel? And, and I guess the feel is a key word here rather than think. So how do you feel? Will we be able to enjoy hunting as individuals uh, in the 20, 30, 50 years time? Oh, now that's a big question, isn't it? Mm. Um, because you could even go down into the levels of, of uh, enjoying private activities, enjoying things as individuals, or, or will everything be guided based on public good? And will everything be done to the wider good of the community? That's... That's one of the things I think about. Um, to bring it maybe more on topic, the private enjoyment and will we be able to enjoy it? I think so in some form. Um, but I think what happens in the next 10 years is going to be crucial to what that looks like because we are we've 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 gone through there's a point in that curve of uh, exponential growth and i forget the name of it but there's a point you pass where after that point the graph just goes all the way up and you can't stop it and i think we've hit that when in terms of social media and opinions on social media and the way we communicate about things um because 20 you and i are both old enough to remember 20 years ago where the internet was around but it wasn't dominant in in our culture entirely um and discussion happened at various levels there were discussions in person you might write emails back and forth to people but that was still limited audience so there'd be things in magazines things on tv about these different subjects and you could stay entirely within your own little bunkered world of hunting or field sports or in my case mountaineering or climbing and all the things i was doing then and not really engage with the, the wider world. Now, if you say, I'm a hunter, I I kill things to eat them, and I kill them myself, that means the moment you say that in a public place, you are injected into this wider world of conversation that involves every single other person on the internet, potentially. So the way we 
we will be able to enjoy hunting i think how much that is and where we're allowed to allowed to do that and i think that's the operative word and where what society thinks is acceptable is going to be dependent on how we talk about hunting and when i say we i mean every single person involved in doing it uh everything every single person involved in doing that has that requirement to or that needs to understand that their their words their actions have an effect on what will happen in the next 10 20 30 40 50 years because it's not what we as hunters think it's not what we as hunters think is the best way to manage things or the best way to blend ecology with finding food and finding food from wild sources none of that matters it's what the rest of the world thinks about us it's what that rest of that public opinion is um i realize that is not really the question you asked me no that is that's that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's you know that's a perfectly valid start to that conversation i'm just wondering like are we not um overvalue the role of the internet and the social media because it seems like everything we we talk about is like oh because social media is either social media's fault or something going to happen on social media and we kind of operate both of us we kind of operate in this digital space let's call it this way but we had many times um sh you know it was shown that what's happening on social media on twitter's facebookies and all these things that's not really what's happening in the real world hmm. it's quite different so i'm just wondering are we not putting too much emphasis on social media in those conversations i think maybe the difference is between a macro and a micro level um i could go and speak to any of the gamekeepers in this i, I live in north wales um, and live in this in a valley in northeast wales there are eight or nine different uh, shoots of one type or another in this valley, and even more if you would go out further. Then there are lots of farms and things in the hills. If I go and talk to the gamekeepers there, the farmers there, about the latest outrage on Twitter about a seal or a piece of wildlife, you know, whatever is the hero animal of the week, they would have no idea what I'm talking about. And at that level... You're right. The internet doesn't really matter. The internet is not real life. Those conversations that we, and I've sometimes been involved in that, get so caught up about and so and get so emotionally invested in, they do not matter on the day-to-day -day lives of the people out on the ground managing things. But the people who are on Twitter, who are on Reddit and are on social media talking about these things are journalists are politicians, are policymakers, people who write opinion pieces in national newspapers. Twitter and the internet is often how they ex now how a lot of these people examine the world and the way they gain information and gain data and you know t take in that data to make their decisions. The things that they hate, the things that they love, the things they think are valuable, the things they think are abhorrent they come partly through this filter of social media. So the people on the ground, they're not affected by it as much up until a policy is made, a law is changed, the funding goes to something else. Then that's when the internet matters, I think. And that's why I still, you know, it would be very easy to shut off my accounts and just go outside and hunt and fish and 
manage woodland and do the things that I think are valuable for that part of my life. But I do want to be aware. I want to be aware of what people who in London, in the cities, in in Europe have, what power they have over my life. And I want to be aware of that by seeing what their opinions are on any given subject. How educated are they? How well-informed are they about any of these subjects? I want to know what what is going on. I want to have that situational awareness of things. And that's why I think it, it, it both matters and it doesn't. On an emotional individual level, it doesn't matter. Turn your phone off and suddenly all that goes away. But someone out there who has an impact on your life is looking at it, is reading it, is making policy decisions about it. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, it is a little bit of that interconnectivity that is, um, there's too much of it, I think. And I don't mean it in a bad way, in a, in a sense of, you know, to keep some people in the dark, but, you know, it's like, you know, exposing 15-year-old to all the things that are going on in the world because they can deal with it emotionally. And this is a little bit what's going on on social media. Some people are just not ready for certain things should be eased off while they're being presented with these things without the filter or maybe even almost like a, uh, in a caricature of what it really is. And, and this is where it's going on. Um, do you think that this is the reason or for, for, um, all this outrage, these you know animals uh, of the week, like you call it, you know, in in, in general, this the the social license to hunt, I think we call, we can call it that way, is um, less and less. And how, why this is happening in in your view? Because if you know, you you go twenty years ago, thirty years ago, like you know, we we were more okay with those things, and now. Is it a matter of just like we getting soft? Is it like social media blame for everything? Like why this is even why why this is even happening? I think um, there's a there's a couple of things at play. One is just we've changed the way we view landscape. We've changed the way we view habitat, nature. Um, the last twenty or thirty years of education about these things information sharing of the way where importance is put upon sharing this information because I've, I've been involved in that. i've been working in the outdoors as an outdoor educator of one type or another for nearly 20 years um we've we and i suppose i'm part of that or was we've told people that nature is there for your recreation nature is there as something you go out you go out from your ha house in the town you go out there and you enjoy nature. It is a green space. It is there for you. It's there for your mental health. It's there for your well-being. And nature is there. It's something you go and look at and it's there and it's all wonderful and lovely. And there's a cultural parallel to that that's also been taught. that, And anyone who does anything to harm nature is therefore bad. On that metric, metric scale, you are evil, you are bad because you are harming nature. That's what bad people do. That's what the villain in the Disney film does. They harm nature. So you've got that side. You, you have the good and the bad. Good is going to look at it. Bad is harming it in any form whatsoever. And death is a form of harm. So that's one aspect of it. And the removal of people from the countryside in a day-to-day -day level 
and making the or at least in, in a way that they interact with the landscape that they see that their actions have an impact on the landscape fewer people working on the land than there were 30 years, years ago certainly um and although we have actually i've noticed a, a, a reversal in that trend in the last five years or so there was still a drain of people away from the countryside so you were less likely to know somebody who worked on a farm somebody who worked in the countryside of one way or another it's now if you're a contractor working in the in a rural area you're working on a building site effectively you're working on a construction area or your work it is a workplace you might be standing at the edge of an ancient forest looking out over a, a meadow system that has been managed in a similar way for 300 years but you're still working in a workplace this is your work environment so it is not seen as habitat, it's not seen as nature, it's not seen as something else. And then nature is what you go off and do at the weekend and go and mountain bike through or walk through or do your adventurous activity through. So you've, you've got that change in perception of landscape and land use, particularly in the UK where we have so many people and so little land in comparison, particularly south of the Scottish border. Um, so we have they've got that aspect of it then there's food and the way we perceive food there's food is either a luxury couture item that involve this is something you see on instagram or you previously watched on tv it was a almost a fetishized item you know you have this very expensive thing with a dribble of something else over it and then something else artfully placed in on the edge of the plate that'll be 300 pounds please sir um that you you have that at level of food then you have the the stuff that people can actually afford and buy daily and the accessibility of that and you can go to any small rural town in england or wales now and find at least two or three supermarkets of one type or another all competing to sell the cheapest food, sell the the tastiest food, but also the cheapest, which isn't necessarily the healthiest. Um, but you know, look at me; I'm hardly a, a, a an example of the finest. Um, I'm ha- hardly an Adonis figure here. So you know, I've I've had my fair share. But you've got that level of understanding of food as well. So you've got those two extremes: cheap and available and tasty, or fetishized and expensive and only for the gods upon high. And if you want anything else in between those things, you've really got to fight your corner. If you want to live an entirely vegan lifestyle, then previously you had to prove, oh, I'm not just a vegetarian, I'm a vegan, and I do this, and this is why, and this is why. And I think vegans developed this culture of constantly having to defend what they were doing because explaining why, no, I can't have milk, I'm a vegan. I can't have eggs. No, no, I know it's not an animal, but it's, I'm a vegan, so I, I, I won't eat that. And that developed into almost an offensive, an attack. Of, I can't do that, and I'm telling you why you shouldn't do that either. So they went off down that track. Then there were there's the, the self-sustaining people, the permaculture people, the people who grow their own food, grow their own whatever. They have their own way of doing things, but... Again, that is a difficult thing to that's a difficult thing to do maybe in modern life because you've got to have access to land somewhere to grow these things somewhere to raise your animals. There are lots of regis- uh, restrictions around la- raising livestock and things. And then finally, you come to more or less where I am now, which is a mixture of the permaculture, grow your own, and 
wild food. So it's foraging, wild plants, wild berries, things that are growing wild that are not, not farmed, and then there are there's wild meat. So whether that's venison, whether that's wild fowl, whether that's fish, um, and those are things I'm interested in uh, and culturally and interested in sort of nutritionally as well. Each one of those layers has a they're all bunkered off from each other now. You don't get many vegan wild food people. You get vegan foragers, but you don't get many vegan wild food people. You don't get many permaculture people who are both interested in wild food and not harming any animals of any type whatsoever. So if you're coming into this now as a young person, you're 16, 17, you're starting to formulate your own opinions, you're starting to find your own way, your own information, your own way of doing things. You come to the internet, you arrive at the internet there, and which bunker are you going to fall into? Are you going to fall into a camp that has an entire culture around it, whether that's wild food, hunting, those kind of things, or is it the permaculture? No, you must grow your own, you must be resilient, you must have your own food supplies for everything. Are you going to fall into that vegan camp? And there are other, you know, all sorts of other flavors and versions of those three that I uh, mentioned. How are you then going to proceed from that? You are now have identified as that food type. I identified as this culture. I identify these as these things. If you are, if you fall, say, into the vegan camp, well, that's going to preclude any hunting, any fishing, any harming of wildlife, any farming that doesn't involve just growing vegetables. But then if you start diving deeper into it, you go, oh, there's pesticides as well. And then there's the way the soil's tilled and these other things. So you fall into this culture. That's kind of been true for the last 50 years, I would say, because there were the people turning from flower power hippies in the 60s into the hobbit hippies of the 1970s. And Richard Maybe published Food for Free, and lots of people moved from London to the west coast of Wales and the west coast of Ireland to go and live off the land and wait for nuclear war and wait and be be ready there with their pigs and their livestock and their vegetables. So these things aren't, you know, they've happened in the last two generations. But in the last 20 years, if you fall into any one of those camps of this is where I get my food from, this is the food culture, this is the wider culture surrounding it, you can find people across the world to be part of your tribe. You can find people, and I think that's the key part to any of this. We look outside of ourselves for validation of our opinions. We look outside of ourselves for why this thing I'm doing. Is it okay? Is it okay that I'm doing this? Is it okay that I'm thinking this? Because, and because I think we've evolved to do that. I think that's part of who we were when we were living in groups, when our the number of people we we knew was Dunbar's number. It was only the, the number of people we could form meaningful relationships with was about the size of an average hunter-gatherer tribe. We would look across the tribe and go, okay, are my opinions correct? Am I doing things in the right way? And from that, we can we we determine okay yes is this okay is the feedback i'm getting from people okay i think we still do that every one of us as humans it's just now the tribe is the internet and that's there's what's that rule 34 if you look for it on the internet there's something there that matches it you can find everything you can find anything on the internet someone's already doing it and because you have everyone has to eat everyone has to consume food food is one of those baseline cultural 
points for any of us that if you fall into you fall into one of those categories you are now identified as that thing you are identified as a hunter identified as a vegan identified as a whatever if that's your thing you can find people to say everything that you think everything that you believe all of your suppositions they are correct which makes it very very hard to examine what you're doing and go well is it correct is it this is it you know within my own objection of objectivity of of good and evil of bad of of okay is this you know you don't look at any of these things and say okay yeah well that's okay but i don't agree with that but i have to do that because i have to achieve that you just go no i'm good why because this person on the internet says so and they validate my opinions so i seem to be on this episode answering in 10 minute blocks of conversation but that <laughs> that's the summation of it that's you you will the opinions have changed because these opinions have been around for a long time but now we have the tools to find an entire tribe who agree with you and they'll join forces with you in attacking the other tribe yeah but that wouldn't explain like what like like why all of a sudden the let's call hunting tribe is lower or smaller or whatever and you know i just want to come back to the what you started with your last 10 minute block is that, <laughs> that sorry no no you're good you're good that's what we do here um that you're saying that oh nature you know whoever harms nature is bad and like but when you look at the nature and the you know industrial scale harm that we're doing to nature that is like oh you know it's like why why would you think that the hunters are harming nature while then you have all the other you know industrial complex that is also harming nature so it's it, it, it i i find it hard to reconcile it i well i think that um sort of proves my point although i didn't make that point explicitly that you if you find enough support for your top level opinions then you you can ignore all the deeper stuff and there's there's this there's a concept i came across last year which um i quite like which is this idea of low resolution and high resolution arguments so a low resolution argument is this bad why i don't know this bad <laughs> that's all you need to know this is bad why all these people say so that's a low resolution argument it's like it's like it's like an 8 bit computer game you know it's very very blocky a high resolution argument has all of those facets all those wrinkles all of those well this is a factor and by this this cultural understanding of what is worth it <clears throat> what is worthy to the culture what is not worthy to the culture this then we've decided this is bad this is good but there's also this and there's this and in order to have this thing this happens in that country we all agree that's bad but there's no other way to do that and i find it's more interesting to have conversations with people who have a high resolution argument because i that's my hope now is to develop a greater resolution greater understanding of any of the things i care about and any time i think of something as well this is definitively bad that's the end of it or this is definitively good that's the end of it i kind of i try and stop myself and go right you've had too simplistic of a reaction to that you're too emotional of a reaction to that you probably don't understand enough of it 
if you're if you don't look at anything and go well this is good but i like this but i don't like that and oh life's complicated you know if, if i don't end up with that at the end of it i think you have i haven't understood it properly so this the thing you said about industrial processes that harm nature then you can see this in what we're talking to each other via the internet we both have smartphones we both are using electronic devices the 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 things that go into mining the rare earth minerals that make a lot of these things work the phone that's on my desk here the lithium battery in this head torch you know i'm surrounded by lithium batteries here some people in africa died for those mm-hmm. yep people got very upset about blood diamonds but no one but they'll they'll send an angry tweet about it from their iphone you know the we can't live on this planet and not have an impact on things and the more things you have the more tools you have the more we have a globalized trade of things and we need this technology but the one thing that makes this technology work that's all over here in central africa or that's all over here in afghanistan or that's here wherever okay well in order to have those things you're going to have an impact on those places so that would be part of that high resolution argument thing the low resolution argument would be killing things is bad why it's bad hmm. that's it you just if you stop there it's um it's too simplistic yeah you made an argument of uh of, about the food and the people understanding food where the food comes from and you know and, and also communication and social media do you think that um, if we want because i presume that we coming from the perspective that we would like uh have more high resolution arguments but also more people understand what hunting is about and um have a more educated conversation about this thing do you think that we should we as a individual hunters but also we as a you know collective we hunting organizations and so on um improve that communication use these tools of the internet to to get more people understand and perhaps even further than that which is something that you said that you do or you or you used to do and we need to talk about it as well you know what you do um that get those people into the into the nature into the wild get you know uh yank them from their computers and from in front of their smartphones and just like hey Look at that, a mountain, a river. Look at this thing in the river. It's a fish. You can eat this and and kind of um, start educating people that way. Do you think we doing like a really, really poor job at it? Or like what's your view on this? So I, if you'd asked me when I was 23, 24, I would have said, yes, we need – If you, all you need to do is take people into these wild places – and they will learn to love it, and they will learn to understand it in the way that I do, because that's sort of what happened to me. Although I, I grew up with it more, and it was I would I would have agreed that education and opportunity makes a difference. The problem is, or at least for me, is that it has never been easier in the in the UK. This is I mean, this is from my experience, but I have friends in the states who have similar things, um, similar experiences there. It has never been easier to find a wild place to go hiking, to go mountain biking, to go and go and travel into and enjoy. Um, the, there are mapping apps that are freely available, and the, the the good ones aren't that expensive. You can go on there and find the GPX 
GPS file for anyone who's gone out and done that hike before, and you can follow in their footsteps almost exactly. You can find outdoor clothing and equipment, which is what 20 years ago would have been world-class expedition classes now available in supermarkets. These, it's never been, all the things that used to be um, barriers to entry, that gatekept was the gate kept, I suppose. The uh, outdoors were were things like equipment, access to information, travel, opportunity, and all of those things are so much easier than they were twenty years ago. Even opportunity, I would say so. Yeah, Trent, we are. Was it two thousand? Was the Countryside Right of Way Act for uh, England and Wales? So that gave you the right to right to roam, which opened up huge areas of upland and wild spaces in England and Wales. The Land Reform Act 2004, which was that, but on steroids for Scotland and included wild camping and things within that, I would say compared to the 90s, um, we are so much, we have so much more opportunity in England and Wales, at least for non-hunting recreation. It's hunting is the thing that's still limited, but maybe we can talk about that later. But in terms of just being outdoors in those spaces, the opportunity is so much better than it was 20 years ago um, or just over 20 years ago. So I would have thought by now, if access to green spaces, access to wild areas was going to make a cultural change within the UK and changes maybe to more of what we perceive to be a Scandinavian culture, where outdoor recreation and understanding of the landscape is is more ingrained in the average person than it is here in the UK because lack of access was always the argument we don't understand the outdoors we don't understand nature because we have been kept from it by our feudal overlords and they have kept us from nature and by going into nature we can we will learn how to appreciate it i'd have thought that would have kicked in by now instead what i've seen is the is that what we have done by saying this is nature this is for you to explore this is how you do it. These are these are the places you can go to. These are wild areas. This is actually farmland, but you can go and walk across here. You can go across here. And even you can wild camp sort of. I mean, just don't tell any, don't advertise it too much. Go above the last fence line. The farmer's not going to come and check. If you're gone by nine o'clock the next day, he won't know you're there. That has been ingrained culturally across the outdoor sector in the UK for over 20 years. What we've done is said, it, it say all that to people, and they've gone, righto, that means these green spaces, they're for me. They're for me to go out into. They're, I, I can mountain bike here because all these people do, and I've, it's enshrined in law, I can do this. That means my I can do more mountain biking here, and I can get more people here mountain biking, and we can set up a guiding business that's for other people to come out and enjoy. And it sort of sidestepped the entire nature part of it even so now all the outdoor training qualifications a lot of them have things like the mountain leader award and things like that they have elements of ecology ecological training within built into the system built into it you have to have demonstrate some ecological natural history knowledge to pass these these assessments the way that's been presented though is being able to identify these five mosses being able to identify this, what's that bird up there? What is this tree? What's what species of tree is this? And the way that is presented to the students and by the assessor and by the organization is because you need to tell other people what those mosses are. 
Hmm. But never is it mentioned in any of these awards. And I've gone through a good number of them and I've, I've, I've worked in that world for a while. Never in those things is it mentioned. And that by being here in this forest that nobody really comes into, you are slowly degrading the quality of this habitat for the wildlife that live here. By making this now effectively a trail center for mountain bikes, you are making it harder for, na- for wildlife to live here undisturbed. The, we have said, by taking people into green spaces, these green spaces are for you. Therefore, people value them based on what it means to them. It is, becomes an entirely human-centric process. You cannot expect that you're going to get people in and then they're going to you know, get enlightenment all on their own. And you touch on it that the education that we have is is flawed. So um and I suppose this is this is my my point uh that should we ramp up the education in in terms of what you said about the habitat, about the hunting, about the you know things that we feel are are missing. Because you know like I I struggle with the with the you know great access to the to the outdoors and so maybe in the outdoors but I would say and it all depends on the on the time scale right you take in 19s 80s 90s that's fine but I feel like if if I would like to go somewhere really like into nature where I don't have you know 2 hours walk to the next road it's hard it's almost impossible and I, I guess that's a part of what you're saying that we have all those people then, and that's becoming, you know, and you can make an argument there is too many people and you know they have too much access to it and because they're you know, uh, but then we going back to the previous one. Okay, so then you're gonna keep all those people in a city who don't understand a damn thing about the outdoors. So it's 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 kind of like a catch twenty two. What you're gonna do? You're gonna you're mm. gonna bring those people in and educate them. And then you have those all those people there, and the place loses the very quality you were looking for and you were trying to communicate. Or contrary to that, it's like, no, 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 you cannot go there. There's too many of you, you're degrading habitat, you know, stick to your uh nightclubs and pubs. But then what we started this discussion, all those people will start influencing policies and, and politicians and so on. And they will go and they'll get like, yeah, what are those people doing there? They should be, you know, in front of a TV with us rather than harming nature or whatever. So I feel like the nature is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. We have a less and less and less and less. And on those, I don't know, it's, I don't have a, I'm not pretending that I have a, uh, you know, like a societal solution to that, but, Something in me is telling me that we should we we should educate people more. And you know, I, some you know my, you might know, but the listeners probably know that I created like a guide for you know how to become a hunter in Ireland, because I found there is a substantial portion of people in their late twenties, thirties, maybe even forties who would like to try their hand in hunting and getting their food and so on. They have no idea where to start. And uh, hunting organizations are not helping in any way because they are kind of like a, there are already hunters there. And there's, yeah, they have a training course and all this and that, but it's unless you know someone who you comfortable to ask the question, 
that you, you you won't find that information you may like you said you may do the mountaineering guide or like mountain biking or whatever but like how to become a hunter how how would i you know harvest the meat for my freezer unless you know someone and a lot of those people who live in the, in the city they do not it's you're stuck there's there's no way so i feel like we we missing the trick here perhaps i can't disagree with any of that really the and this is why I prefer the high-resolution argument. There is no simple answer to any of these things. Um, and I think one of the first steps is honesty. Honesty from all organizations, from all parties, all sectors of outdoor use. If we just call it outdoor recreation, if we include all field sports, hunting, angling within that. If There are people who work in that, but it's still outdoor recreation. It is not industry as such. Um so within all sectors of that more honesty is required from the outdoor activities mountain uh, guiding hiking hill walking mountain biking kayaking all of these things if you go and speak to any of the national governing bodies or the national organizations for that mountain training british mountaineering council uh, british canoe union all these places they will talk. They are entirely human-centric organisations. They will talk about their memberships, their members' access to land, their members' activities, development. Can we get climbing into the Olympics if we can? How are we going to train the next three generations of climbers? All these things, and then the outdoors is a venue to them. It is the place you go to do these things at no level. And I've asked because over the last couple of years, and we've been talking about this online and through various things. I've asked these organizations out of curiosity and then out of more of a, okay, so no, what do you really think um, point of view? I've asked these organizations, what do you talk about? What do you think about your ecological impact of these activities? What are your statements for that? And it's just, most it boils down to, or to either we won't answer you, um, we don't have to, but, or our activities cause no um, ecological impact whatsoever. And a couple of times I've had, and it was from um, one of the canoe organizations, they responded entirely with all the problems that fishermen cause, and anglers oh. cause, <laughs> which was interesting, I thought. And the same with the with the farming argument was brought up when I asked one of the hillwalking organizations. So that was sort of in person with one of their chief execs, but they immediately talked about the harms of overgrazing in upland areas. So hill walking can't be a problem because that's much worse. It's like, okay, but you can't answer a problem with someone else's problem. That's not how you solve your problem. Yeah. So I think for the outdoor organizations, they need to acknowledge that the way they present things is very, very biased, and it's only one facet of things. And that includes all of their their agents say anyone who's working under one of their qualification schemes anyone who's working under their overall access campaigns and things like that they have to acknowledge or they should acknowledge that yes humans being in this landscape in this habitat will have an impact will have an effect 
on that habitat, on that landscape. Whether it's something that is acceptable to you or not, well, that's based on your personal scale of acceptability. But just you are being there, you're doing something, you're crushing this moss. It's going to take a little bit longer to rebound, that kind of thing. I, mean, I teach tracking and ground sign awareness to the police. So I know how, you know, just standing somewhere, yeah, you're going to have an impact on that landscape. And I'm going to show you how to take a photo of it and find the bad man. You know, these just being there will have an impact on it dogs off leads constant noise vehicles going past in a mountain bike trail area something like that there will be this impact conversely the field sports side of things the hunting side of things um they need to acknowledge i would say that the world has changed yes that if you have an organization that's entirely staffed by, or at least led by men who are over the age of 50, you are not going to be representative of people under the age of 40 because you grew up in different worlds. Over the age of 50 is like a bunch of youngsters. Yeah. Compared this is, to what I see. Yeah. And, I, and I've got several friends who will be listening to this going, hang on. But so, no, no, I am talking about you, but only because I am just under the age of 40 and um, and I am at, still at the older age of things in terms of internet culture and those and and the and that wider social media thing the influences of everyone who grew up with the internet are very very different to those who grew up before and your view on life is going to be different and the future is still going to be skewed by the internet and social media and those opinions and those things so by putting tradition and this is the way we've always done things ahead of anything else and then putting an overlay of ecology and wildlife management on top of that you are you are not being honest you are being as dishonest as any of the mountaineering organizations when they say human access is not a problem at all we should have it everywhere um because you're putting your traditions your cultural way of doing things ahead of what the reality of the situation is now and what the reality of the situation will be in the next five years i'll speak to i've got a friend who's a who's a, a fairly senior member in a shooting organization and we were talking about this and lead and uh driven game shooting and all these things and he was saying no no i'm this he he, he is convinced that he is the last generation that will be anywhere near it that driven game shooting is dead in 10 years lead's gone gamekeepers will be gone or at least there'll be one or two and it's going to be pest control and maybe some and, and deer reduction and that's what hunting will be in 20 years time um and when i asked him then okay so what do you think can be done about that he said it doesn't matter it's all gone it's done it's done and he was so, so nihilistic so hopeless about it and I've met that opinion a couple of times where it's people are managing the today and they feel like they're on the they're like the the caretakers on on their la on, on taking care of the building for the last ten years of its life. You know, the, the, and this building is gonna be knocked down in ten years. They'll they won't be around by then anyway, or twenty years or thirty years. So enjoy what time you have now. Um and I'd like that to change within the shooting organizations and some more honesty about that and thirdly the honesty of the honesty of the impact of commercialized hunting the 
we need in England, uh, more so than Wales, because we have very, very few deer in Wales, but in England, deer are endemic. They are, they are cause huge problems for forestry, for farming, for wildlife management and wildlife habitat creation overall. But because hunting is perceived as a luxury, it's perceived as a luxury uh, activity, as a high-level activity that is you can charge a lot of money for. Because if you're turning up there stalking, you've got at least a thousand pounds on your shoulder of rifle and things, paperwork. They can charge for it. So you have in the the areas of England where deer control is vital, you have people charging hundreds of pounds, if not thousands of pounds, for stalking. Because, well, I'm a landowner, I can make a lot of money from people wanting to come and shoot all of these deer. That can't be supported. That can't be supported by the shooting organizations, just in the same way that, uh, well, steel shots, okay, for newer shotguns, so we can keep driven game shooting, so we can get rid of all lead. It's like, well, that's going to knock out air rifles, that's going to knock out rimfires, that's going to knock out these smaller calibers, that is actually the majority of the numbers of of, of people who are shooting of one type or another hunting in the UK, but it's okay because really the big driven game things are going to continue. And because steel will be fine for that. So we can keep importing birds in firing them out over people and people can pay 3000 pounds to stand on a peg for the day, blowing pheasants out of the sky. And I, that's the problem I have with the shooting organizations, particularly uh, I mean, I've got less. I've got less knowledge of the angling organisations. They seem to be doing a hell of a lot better, but the shooting organisations do seem to be skewed towards money, towards uh, the big business side of things, and much less towards the grassroots, lower level side of things. And when I talk to them about the younger generation, and when I talk to them about maybe the things they're missing, then they they immediately go yeah well we've got this young shots program and we teach these kids that and it's like no 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 never mind the kids we can sort those out them out second there are people between the ages of 25 and 45 who are interested in hunting interested in finding wild game in, interested in these things who have no access to it because they go to your website and there's there's lots of people wearing tweed who are all over the age of 45 doing holding 10,000 pounds worth of shotguns or the, it, it's not representative of them. And there's that thing about American culture, um, which has so much because of the internet again, has so much of an effect over on this side of the Atlantic that is not acknowledged by either the hill walking hiking organizations or the or the outdoors organizations or the field sports organizations but what's that conversation you and i have had a several times that the most the meat eater podcasts have and joe rogan and people like that have much wider audience in the uk here than any of the other outdoor things yes absolutely no man you you're you're hit the nail in the head here um with you know like a need to reform uh, of those organizations uh, I see the same thing. It 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 pains me immensely. Um, you know, it's it, even going down to the level of some of those organizations. They really don't understand the world of social media, which again is like coming up and up over again here. But that's that's uh, just a inconvenient true. If you if you like, um, 
they they don't know how to deal with the with the current situation so anyway just just going back to what you said did i get that right uh which is maybe a little surprising to me but i i agree if that's the case if that's the case what you meant that you that you mean more of a we need like more of a democratization of hunting democratization of shooting and fishing and that way getting more people in and letting them you know being presenting that as a part of nature being in nature rather than this golfization of hunting sort of thing right where you i i, I usually talk about this uh european and american type of hunting where the european type of hunting is like like you said you, you need to several thousand pounds of gear and you show up with you in your you know fat car and you, it's like a massive social event while i think and i i started hunting late in in life and this is this is like the us tv this is what sparked my um you know that's what captivated me you know like this wilderness this this being on the landscape and kind of in tune with nature and in tune with the deer and like we don't have that so i i'm i'm guessing that's where you where you're coming from like we need more actually more people doing this but in a correct way in their quotes um yeah democratization I don't know if that's it's the necessarily the right term, but access opportunities would be good. I mean, you could take all of the the arguments made for outdoor access. I mean, we, we and in England we've just had the uh, the Dartmoor while camping um, discussion and the and the the change in interpretation of that 1985 Dartmoor Commons Act and and there's still the furore going on over that now. You could take the arguments made by access campaigners about all of the reasons that people need to have access to this landscape because of the historical rights, because of what it means culturally, because of what it means in terms of mental health, in terms of what it means about sharing these resources that aren't then bunkered with individuals or bunkered more often with corporations and state organizations and making it accessible to, uh, to more people. You could take all those arguments and if you applied it to, say, hunting, and to put it into shooting and say to, okay, so with these are designated hunting areas. I mean, here in North Wales, we've got Clicanog Forest, which is, I'm pointing that way because it is, it's, 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 <laughs> it's directly there. behind me up on the hill there, um, but it's to the west of here. You have forests in mid Wales, air, open areas there, which are owned by the state. They're owned by the Welsh government and or Welsh Water, I think, own some of them. And there would be hunting opportunities of one type or another in there, which you could follow the American model of um, managing habitat so that there is an, a surplus of wildlife, which means people have the opportunity for hunting within a hunting tag lottery system and those kind of things. That would be theoretically possible. And you can make those same, same arguments and they would scan. They would be a valid argument, even if you disagreed with it. But nobody anywhere would go anywhere near that discussion in hunting in the hunting organizations in the welsh government in um in any kind of public discourse if you talked about okay what about opening up land for public hunting and i know that's something you've you've discussed many times and the, the, the or, or subjects around that that would have no there's no cultural interest in that from anyone in power from anyone with a voice within the hunting community with anyone 
in those things. I don't necessarily advocate for it, but an argument could be made for that. I don't think it's possible, and I don't think it's likely to happen because of the culture that we have in the UK and the culture that is still that we won't shift. Um, going back to what I was saying earlier, that if you, we've had 20 years of outdoor access and the culture hasn't gone in the direction that people intended it to originally, or at least in terms of relationship with the outdoors, I don't think we'd have that cultural change here if we changed our opinions towards shooting and made it more accessible. Um, so, and politically, I am generally not in favor of state having a mandate over people in terms of we should change this law to force people to force landowners to force these places to make it more accessible for other people i generally don't agree with those kind of things i think you can have organic systems that will develop over maybe three four five ten generations but having a right on this date we're going to change the law and you all have to change with it i generally think that's a bad idea and I keep being proven right, but <laughs> at least in my opinion, um, with things. And I, I don't know. Yeah. So de democratization, not necessarily, but honesty of discussion. So at least these things can develop organically. Um, because that's happened in agriculture, I'd say. Agriculture is getting better. If you're under the age of 45 now and you're working in agriculture, and particularly if you're, you're inheriting the farm, you're taking it on you're more likely to be open to the ideas of permaculture, to um, regenerative agriculture, organic with a lowercase o, so you don't have to pay into the system, but um, planting hedges, those kind of things. The, the, gener the, the, the way landscape is being managed here in, in Wales, at least, and I know friends in England, it's changing and it's being driven by people not by the state, not by, oh, we're going to plant this hedgerow because you get more money for it. It's No, I know, I know lots of farmers who are planting hedgerows, plant, doing these things, putting in these wildlife corners because they realize that the trend they were on with their, with their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents since the Second World War was heading in a direction that wasn't, that wasn't going to continue. It was going to end up with them losing the farm and them ending up with a barren wasteland of, uh, of rye grass. That's all they would have. So they are more interested in ecology, more interested in that natural history of their farm. That is something that has developed not through state control, not through, not through by the National Farmers Union or anyone like that saying, you must do this because it's for the greater good. It's done through honesty and education and all and, and more levels saying, yeah, actually the the spreading of thousands and thousands and thousands of liters of slurry across the field year after year maybe hasn't had the impact we wanted it to or what we were told by our by the farming organizations that it was yeah it's fine just do this it's fine it's a re it's a good free fertilizer and you can do it it won't have any detrimental effects and then 30 years later yeah maybe lads that's not such a, a great idea those changes are happening organically I would like that to see see that happen in both the outdoors world, so hiking, mountaineering, climbing, which are the same thing, um, outdoor recreation and shooting and field sports, rather than trying to really bunker down on their own beliefs and say, well, the way we've done things, the way we've always told you to do things is right. Just keep doing those things. We'll win, lads. Yeah. You know? 
No, hundred percent, hundred percent, and it goes to education, really. Which I, I am of the opinion that education is the solution to almost every single problem, uh, and it's a lack of education in certain areas is a cause of these problems. Um, Richard, if you were, if you were, um, if you were given the powers, being in one of the you know, hypothetical, not existing, but powerful hunting organization, or maybe you know, I don't. I know that you don't like the government, but maybe if you have an Im- <laughs> impact on the government <laughs> policies, you know, what would you what would you prescribe? What would you like to see? And you know, you can you can just open uh, assume that you have like a, a almost unlimited powers, including you know, changing people's minds and so on. Like, what would you do? What would you advise to do to ensure that hunting, fishing, these type of interactions are going in the right direction over the next 20, 30 years? I don't hate the government, but I do because I work for them occasionally. It's just... Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> yeah, I was just know. saying <laughs> that you said that you're not in favor of, of well, going, like, top down, so I was kind of... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, to that. <laughs> To tie that one off, then, I would say that what are my edicts would be, if you ever wanted to become a politician, that should then bar you from being able to be one for life. Um, if you, you wanting to become, wanting to do that, should then preclude you from the, the, the option to do it. Um, the, I would say, an opening of dialogue between, and actively pursuing dialogue between the different land users between the we the la- access to land is the is at the crux of these issues and forcing dialogue in a way through i don't know how you would force it without then state control or anything else so this is but this is all hypothetical forcing dialogue between these users so that the british mountaineering council has to talk to basque has to talk to the national gamekeepers organizations and that their policies have to interact with each other that otherwise they they just become political arms they are become the they become so politically aligned with one viewpoint or another left or right authoritarian or libertarian or whatever the divide is now um and they both sit in their corner of the overton window um of acceptability the so forcing those things and also explaining to the membership of those organizations as well that why why that is happening because these organizations are on the face of it all democratized already so that they have agms they have um they are most the 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 chief execs and the executive boards of these organizations are led by the opinions of their members but that bites to that cuts two ways if you're what you're doing as an organization only agrees with some of your members or only appeals to some of your members, then those are the members you'll have. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So opening it out, making it more acceptable, and opening that dialogue out to the wider world so that no organization can say that these people over there, they're bad. Those are the bad guys because they disagree with what we're doing get them lads it's you can't say that these are the yeah these aunties why because they're hill walkers all right well i'm a hill walker and i 
own several shotguns and several rifles. You know, it, it's I'm, I'm hardly anti anti that, but because I'm standing here in yellow Gore-Tex, you are therefore immediately think I am the enemy. And I've come across that several times. It's like I have I almost have different modes of clothing because it, oh I, I've had this where with, through my work when I'm working. On, a, on an estate, on a big estate, talking with one of the gamekeepers there, but because I was wearing uh, like a RAB or mountain equipment Gore-Tex for doing it, they refused to believe I was involved in any kind of hunting or field sports. <clears throat> but if I Jeez. turn up wearing a ridgeline or turn up wearing something else, then it's, oh yeah, you're wearing the uniform of acceptable dress for this conversation. And that's one of the things and hope to do with our business and our things we're changing is making that conversation more blended but i would want that was the other thing i'd like to do is if you can just if we could force be given that power and i'm not really exercising this power very well am i that you've given me um but if you could make people talk with each other honestly about what their aims are because if you take away the politics of it if you take away that okay open access is a policy of the left it is not a policy of the right access to land is a it's a policy of the proletariat it's a policy of <laughs> uh, of these people we must seize the means of food production by taking your field whatever it is um we those outdoor you can't say that that is a left policy because what if it's outdoor access for hunting well hunting is a right issue so should that be a right po- oh no it gets all confused then so by making these organizations talk to each other and find the common ground but also find the areas where they differ, but maybe where there's some hypocrisy, where they publicly say one thing, but actually the reality of being a landowner is means that those things that you say publicly are, are really hard to implement. I mean, going back to the wild camping ban, you've got the those organizations on Dartmoor, and it's not in wild camping ban, it's just removal of the right to do it. On those organizations, those organizations that own sections of Dartmoor You've got the Forestry Commission, you've got the Ministry of Defence, you've got the National Trust, you've got these these other places. A lot of the organisations saying that, no, you should definitely be allowed to wild camp here and we will fight for your right to do it. They own land elsewhere. They own quite big acreages of land, particularly the National Trust. It's one of the top 10 landowners in the UK. They could overnight say, yes, you have the right to wild camp here and do what you want, but they don't because the realities of being a land manager makes it very, very complicated. So if you could bring some of that internal discussion within that organization between the access team and the land management team of those organizations, they have that dialogue themselves and I've seen it and I've witnessed it. If you could bring that to the wider discussion to show this is a really complex issue, there's lots of different viewpoints here and no one is right and no one is really wrong either but you are convincing yourselves that your point of view is entirely right. Your point of view is, or their point of view is entirely wrong. Again, because you can find enough people in that organization, in that world to tell you that you're all right. So, no, I think you're, you're exercising that, that, that powers I gave you in an excellent way. This is exactly it. Conversation. I presume that you would also include the likes of uh, wildlife trusts and, and, and things like oh, that. Oh, in this conversation. Yeah. I don't know like what the wildlife trust situation looks in the UK but I you know I was in my naivety when I was coming to hunting in my naivety I was shocked 
that you know wildlife trusts are actually not like a good buddies with hunting organizations because they should and it's like what so like i said i was just coming into this hunting world and was very naive and i thought that this is just a common sense and then it was like need to get over like how how this is not happening because what you said the people are just uh, biased and confirming their own biases all the time I have a I have several friends who work for wildlife trusts. Um, I have worked with them as a contractor. I've trained them. I've created media for them. I've consulted for them on different projects. Um, my partner used to work for one of them, and she used to work for a countryside organization as well. And I would say as a whole, with that broad sweeping brush that never applies at the granular level, but as an organizational whole, wildlife trusts are human-centric organizations because wildlife does not have any money. <laughs> Door mice do not have pockets. They have, do not have a wallet. So they, you have, in order to fund this organization and the charitable works of the organization, you need to make money. The way you make money is either through donations from individuals, donations um, or through membership and those kind of things, in which case the people you have to position yourself so that people will give you money for the things that they think are valuable so what you find is by wildlife trusts buy up areas turn it into a nature reserve put a car park at the edge and then degrade the value of that habitat for wildlife by encouraging people to go there as a dog walking venue and as every every 17 minutes a dog comes through that patch of cover in the spring you get very few ground nesting birds there you get very few of these things and there's no very little predator control happens on wildlife trust sites very little you do habitat creation but habitat creation on its own as has been proven time and time again is you need you need the other legs of a stool you need the other legs of a three-legged stool so you you that's one of the things that happens with organizations like the like the wildlife trust the other funding comes from grants used to be european grants and now it's things like the national lottery funds and prince's trust and these kind of money money transmitting organizations that they have huge pots of money given to them that they then disseminate to other organizations and sometimes it's weird corporate stuff like landfill tax um that you know landfill money from waste companies has to then go to something else so they they have another project but what crept in 10 15 years ago and is now is just central to all of these funding applications is what does this benefit humans does this project benefit enough humans does it benefit enough people from a lower income does it benefit enough people from an ethnic or religious or other minority diversity or other diverse group or other group that is perceived minority status these are literally form boxes on the form or you have to explain why my tree planting project in this river valley how does this benefit the how does this benefit a, a minority community of some type or other these are tags that are put on this funding and this is not a diversity thing this is not an ethnicity thing it just shows that you cannot release that funding for a wildlife project or a habitat project until you show what it does for humans and that is the problem with any of these wildlife organizations is that they 
if they said we're going to take your money we're going to buy this place and we're going to manage it as the best habitat for wildlife because there's a badger on our logo and we like wildlife i would i would fight for them every day of the week but because what they say instead is we are a very large and expensive charity with lots of people and lots of expenses to support no one in there is well paid you know the, the these organizations even the chief executives are very relatively poorly paid compared to other things but the money goes into a lot of other stuff it's a very expensive thing to do they have to put people first because people generate the money enable for, for them to keep doing what they're doing and that i would say the same goes for the rspb and other places like that the the wildlife those wildlife organizations coming to it you'd think yeah well wildlife hunting they go hand in hand in lots of other countries here in the uk if you're a hunter you're a wildlife murdering bastard whereas if you work for the wildlife trust or a tr- organization like that you're a badger hugging good person you you're you're right there's there's uh, this perception that you talked about earlier and also what you said about honesty and and part of like something that we discussed as well is like those those uh wildlife organizations they they need um donations they need membership money and they tend to revolve around certain types of members and then if they go with a policy of you know hunting or whatever then they uh, will basically lose a portion of their members and they just um don't want to do that they can't afford in in many cases to do that and so they're not saying things that they even know because usually when you talk with those people i'm sure that's your experience as well they they know those things they're 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 you know reasonable people but then on the organization level oh we cannot do this because like you know like 40% of our members would leave and we saw those uh, uh examples richard uh you mentioned at least few times uh what you do and you do a lot of interesting things uh training courses for police this and that you also have a podcast please lay it out um you know everything that we need to know about what you do uh and how people can maybe avail for your service if uh, there is a such thing that they can do um and how to get in touch with you you know all the things this is this is the bit i'm never very good at um because everything I, i'm too diffuse i have too many things i've done everything i can to avoid having a real job in my life um so far so good um you can split it into three things i uh do i i train people in outdoor skills of one type or another um so i i've worked in the mountains i i train doing different things so you can find most of that via originaloutdoors.co.uk there's also that's where you'll find our podcasts and there'll be plural podcasts maybe by the time this comes out and several different uh, titles and several different things that we do there's a youtube channel associated with that there are blogs there's all sorts of things there uh, but that covers hunting as well as wild food and some other things so it's not just a an outdoorsy uh, channel um there i have i i'm a photographer um which you if you find at rich prido on instagram that'll probably take you to where you need to go for that um but that's less and less of what i do now maybe and then 
Thirdly, I consult for places that do uh, wild, that use wild plants and use wild materials in commercial products. So I work with a, a skincare brand that uses wild plants in their skincare products, which you'll then are made and go off to very expensive places all around the world. Um, and I work with chefs and restaurants in different places and consult with them about using wild plants and wild game in their dishes and how to use that. Um, none of which is easy to share in a way of the wrap up I meant to do at the end of a podcast. So I told you I was rubbish at this. Uh, so the, if you want to come and hear hours and hours of me talking about the outdoors in a, in one easily shareable thing, go to modern outdoor survival, search for that on all podcast players and things like that. And that from there, you'll hear hours and hours of me talking about the outdoors and how not to die in them. Uh, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm going to put all those links in the description of the show for, yeah. for people who, who wants to have it, uh, clearly there, or maybe for people who, who won't make it in, you know, our 11 minutes into the, <laughs> into the episode. So at least they have it there. Man, that was uh, that was awesome conversation. It seems like there's like another podcast in there somewhere to talk to you about the, all the stuff uh, like a survival and, and and things. But then I'm sure that people who are can't wait for that they can go to your podcast, listen to there, and uh, I'm a listener as well. And there's a lot of very interesting stuff. Listen, uh, any words of wisdom that you would like to leave our listeners with? Um, you know, both hunting and fishing listeners as well as the listeners who are maybe more into um you know observing rather than participating don't always assume that the person on the other side of the argument is completely wrong and don't assume that you're completely right short and to the point richard thank you so much thank you guys thank you for listening if you enjoy the podcast please leave me five star rating on spotify or apple podcast this is great help for me and for the podcast and while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.